It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station 77 WABC. Good afternoon and welcome to Left versus Right here on the WBC Talk Radio, 77 WABC. My name is Anthony Weiner representing the left side of the spectrum. Curtis Slee will be joining us in the second hour representing the right, or what he would say is right down the middle or right as incorrect. We have a great show today. It's really great to have you along with us. This is, of course, a very meaningful weekend. We are in the midst of Holy Week, tomorrow, Easter Sunday. For my Lantzman, the Jewish community, this is Pesach, and of course it's Ramadan for those followers of Islam. And so this is a good time to be getting together, talking about issues, talking about things that unify us, talking about things that maybe divide us, but we can talk about them a little better. And I'm really glad you're along. We're going to have another issue where I dive in a little bit deeper than normal uh, today, another issue that perhaps will prepare you for the conversations you might be having over your holiday dinner table Call it maybe the context of the week or the meet you in the middle segment. We also are going to hear in the second half of our show, we're going to hear from a person who's going to bring us another chapter in the Hunter Biden laptop story. I can't get enough of this one. A couple of weeks ago, I did a a whole show about it or a good portion of a show about it. It became something of an expert because I was hearing a lot about it on the show, uh, hearing a lot about it on this network, and I wanted to learn more. But this week, the the story got even crazier. And a little later in the show, we are going to hear about an interview given by John Paul Mac Isaac. And if you are a real Hunter Bidenologist, you'll recognize that name. He is the guy who had the laptop. And what he said this week is going to make you either scratch your head, smile, or laugh out loud. Or as my son Jordan would say, lol. And I try to remind him that that... I actually asked Jordan the other day, do you know what lol means? I don't, I don't think he knew. He just knew lol. And then, of course, when Curtis comes at, uh, at 3 o'clock, uh, we are going to talk about some of the issues of the week. He, of course, is someone who can give us remarkable context about the subway shooter. If you've been listening to WABC Talk Radio all week, you know that Curtis was there at the time that it happened, or soon thereafter, put it that way, and was reporting from the ground as only Curtis can, given his knowledge of the subway system. We're also going to try to answer the question, did Governor Hochul have a terrible week, a very bad week, or a disastrous week? That is the grade curve for her this week. And I saw Eric Adams today said he wasn't going to commit to releasing his taxes as some – just about every – well, that's not true. I was going to say just about every mayor has in the past, but Mike Bloomberg famously did not. And Curtis, as he always does, found a great story for us to talk about And it has to do with whether your neighborhood police officer can smoke marijuana when he's off the job. And depending on what neighborhood you're in, whether that's the case or not. So it's really great to have you along. If you'd like to get in the queue and uh, be part of the conversation, represent the part of Curtis while he is on his way in, feel free to do that. 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. Of course, you can always follow us on WABCradio.com. 
And all past episodes, including the one about me and Hunter Biden, that I did on Hunter Biden, which I thought was excellent, you can get that on the Red Apple Podcast Network. So what is the issue today? And as you you know, if you're listening to this program for a couple of months now, and I want to thank all of you who have. Fortunately, a lot of people have been tuning in. Some new people have been coming in because they wanted to hear, since I'm not perhaps a traditional host, well, for anything, but not a traditional host on this network. We've gotten a lot of new listeners and also folks who have engaged that they hadn't before. I have been trying to pick one issue each week. And although we talk about this being left versus right and being a slugfest, but it's more kind of a meet you in the middle kind of segment where we try to give context to an issue. And today is a challenging one. It's the issue of immigration. And I'll let that sink in because, yeah, that's a biggie. Um, Because we really do have a crisis uh, in immigration, but – as I'm going to try to describe, it's a it's a crisis really in four parts or four different elements of it. And like past issues that I've talked about on this program, it is one where the conversation, everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome to call in. Everyone is welcome to participate. But the 10 percent on the far left who believe that everything AOC says is gospel and that Joe Biden can do no wrong and that every Democratic position is the right one. And the 10 percent on the right who believe the same thing about Donald Trump, the right wing and the Republican Party, this conversation is less for you than it is for probably the 80 percent who are partisan, who have firm views about where they are on the political spectrum. And if you're listening to WABC, you're probably more inclined to be more right leaning. But you're open to suggestions, open to facts and open to having real discussions about it. You don't want every issue reduced to just a bumper sticker or just a name calling. And then there are a bunch that I'd like to participate in this conversation that are people that have checked out, that have said, listen, I don't believe any of this is on the level. I'm not going to listen to these debates. I'm not going to participate in them. But immigration is one of those debates that if you give it some context, you quickly realize that there is enormous amount of consensus among us. And a recent poll showed that one thing has held for the last 35 years or so, despite all the controversy, and that is – Over 65% of Americans believe that we are a nation of immigrants and are proud of that, meaning that the United States of America as an immigrant country is still something that we should aspire to and be proud of. But there's a lot of differences about what that means. So as we look at the so-called crisis of immigration, it really comes down to four different crises, three of which I have solutions for and one that I don't. To start with, let's talk about what's going on on the southern border today. And it was highlighted even further. There was a story in today's New York Post about a plane landing in Westchester under the dark of night and um, migrants getting off the plane, people feeling that was controversial. Last week, Curtis and I spoke about this a little bit. What is going on in the southern border is that people are coming mostly from places like Guatemala and Honduras, from Central American countries. And they are coming to our border and lining up to be asked to be granted asylum saying that they are being persecuted, they are unsafe in their country. And there there are laws in our country, plus the very nature of our country is we're a place that the persecuted can come and find relief. But that line has gotten bigger and bigger. It's not historically big. It's not bigger than it was in 2019. It's not bigger than it was in 2009. But it's big. And the line is becoming overwhelmed. And on that line, so to speak, are a lot of children, a lot of unaccompanied children. And let's just begin with one basic element of all of this. The people on that line are not criminals. They're applying to go through the existing legal system that we have in our country. They're not climbing over walls. We're going to get to that later. They're not being smuggled in. We're going to get to that later. 
These are people who are trying to do it the right way, and they're on this line. But once they appear on that line, it's becoming harder and harder to figure out what to do with them. Some people are being, if they have a relative or they have a sponsor in this country and they're not at the Texas border and can't get there, we fly them, we the United States taxpayer, fly them closer to where those people are. That's why those flights are landing. The fact that they're landing at night is just a function of the fact that that's the cheapest time to land them. They're also getting in buses. They're also getting on trains. We're figuring out where to put these children and to some degree families. We're not – we don't have very many people who are being allowed in if they're, uh, if they're adults. But basically children and families, we're trying to figure out what to do with them. And those people are very often fleeing countries that are falling apart. Honduras and Guatemala ravaged from – but COVID-19, for example, two hurricanes have hit. So there's an enormous amount of despair. But still, we have to figure out of those people which are true asylees and which are not. And the, the, the problem is right now they're being effectively released and told to come back. And that process is very long. Solving this problem is not rocket science, but you've got to do three things. One is you have to take that line and separate out the people who are here coming for economic purposes, coming here to make money, coming here to improve their lives by making money. They're on that same line because we don't have such a program in place right now. We have been completely stuck as a country coming up with it. We've done it for other countries. For example, uh, Mexico has a program that allows people to come in, be migrant workers, and then leave, and about 270,000 of them do that every single year. But we don't have a similar program for, the re- for Central America. So the first thing we need to do, and it's kind of like a, a tough thing but something that's doable, is say, okay, if you're coming here to make money, if you're coming here because you want to be a migrant worker, if you're coming here because you want to come here for, for economic purposes, we have to give them a separate line. We have to sort them out. They're on that same line because it's the only way to get in, and it's doubling and tripling and quadrupling the number of people waiting on the line to get for asylees. The second thing that we have to do, and I know that first one sounds easy, but it's, it, it, I mean, sounds hard, but it actually is difficult, but doable. The second things we have to do is we have to take these cases out of the hands of, of immigration courts. And if you think that I've got a radio show now because I'm going to make a comeback in politics, you'll hear this is not a popular position among some of my friends on the left. But right now, part of what's slowing down this process of determining whether someone is a legitimate case for asylum is we have to wait and put them before an immigration court judge. Judges, as all judges are, appointed by either Democrats or Republicans, and sometimes the cases are coming out wildly different. Some judges will let in eight of ten asylee applications. Some will let in one of ten. And what many people are saying when they come to our borders, I'm going to take my chance. In fact, many many uh, families are returning more than once because they want to figure out whether they can get a judge that will be more sympathetic to their cause. This is, does not have to be this way even under the present law. They can be heard in front of administrative officers, essentially bureaucrats who can hear these cases and try to determine whether indeed these people are being persecuted and should be let in and had to dispense with them. Which brings us to the third thing. We have to do this quickly. We cannot have people waiting for two years to have an asylum case heard where they're released out into the country, even if they're going to come back and even if statistics show they generally do, released out into the country with a phone or with a monitoring system or with a phone number that they have to check in on. We have to make sure that everyone down in, in, in these countries knows that if they come here, it is not going to be two years of reprieve while they wait for their case. It's going to be a matter of weeks and a matter of months. And if we do that, then holding these people, in a civilized way, 
in a compassionate way becomes a much more easy thing to do. We're holding it for weeks and months rather than years. So we have to do those things and we have to do them quickly. And one other thing that we have to do, and this perhaps some on the right will think is outrageous, we have to help these countries before we get these migrant waves. If there is a country that's struggling with COVID-19, if there's a country that has been struck by a hurricane, it is much cheaper for us to provide aid to help those countries so that their people don't have to flee the country than it is to deal with immigration in our border. So that's the crisis at the southern border. Four ideas on how to deal with it. The second crisis that we have in this country around immigration is the fact that there are 11.4 million people in this country who are here that are undocumented. And for those of you who think the answer to that is just to go arrest them all, that's 11.4 million people out of 331 million. That's about 3%. That's needles in a haystack. And besides, many, many of those people, and we all know them, are people who are working, who are paying taxes, probably with a fake Social Security number, but paying taxes, sending their kids to school. They've learned English. They've opened up businesses. They're constructive Americans in every way, except somewhere along the line, they came here uh, and are, are here without documentation. And for those people, solving that problem is important because mixed into those 11.4 million people are some real troublemakers. They're not all that way. And in order for us to figure out who is right and who is not, who is someone that we should allow to stay here and who is not, I have the following proposal. Anyone who can show they pay taxes, they follow the law, that they're working, that they're not a drain on the government, that they've learned English, that they've had their kids in school, those people get to stay. But they don't go to the front of any line. They go to the end of the line. They get an ID card that can't be copied. They're put at the end of the line to get citizenship. And it's not amnesty because they have to pay a fine. That's how you probably separate out. If you say if you come out of the, of the, of the shadows, if you become part of the system, if you follow the rules, we will give you a path. And what's left over, those are the people that we can pursue. Those are the people who don't come out of the shadows, who don't choose to take advantage of this, those are the ones that we know are probably troublesome and we should pursue. Now, I should say, this is the crux of a proposal that unified about 80% of Congress, and it still has not become law, but it's probably something that has a little bit for everyone. So that's the second crisis, is what to do with the undocumented who are here. The third problem is, how do you keep the bad guys out? And I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you, dear listeners, to sit down for this part. I believe I, Anthony Weiner, liberal, progressive, former candidate for, for, for mayor, member of Congress, representing the Democratic Party, I believe we should build a wall. Okay. Now, I don't believe it's going to do much good. I believe it's thousands of miles. I believe it goes through private property. I believe it doesn't solve the problem. But what it does do, I believe is it takes it off the table. It takes the conversation off the table for those people who believe that enforcement and enforcement alone is a solution to this problem. And it does, I believe, maybe symbolically send the message that if we don't get our borders under control, that if we don't have an immigration system that works, then nothing else will work. So those are three, I don't know, call them solutions to our big three immigration problems. But the final one, is one that, frankly, I don't have an answer to. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to talk to you about that one because that might be the mother of all immigration crises 
Is that it, Kevin? Is that crisis seize? Is that the way you say it? That's the one that I don't have an answer to, and that's the one that maybe you do. So give us a call, 800-848-9222-848-WABC. And also, when we're done talking about immigration and taking some calls, I will let you in on the craziest new twist in the Hunter Biden laptop case. Thanks for being with us. See you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Welcome back. My name is Anthony Weiner, representing the left side. And Curtis Lee will be joining us at the top of the hour. Elvis Presley bringing us in, saying a little less conversation, a little more action. That is perhaps the perfect line to introduce the subject of immigration we've been talking about today. And if you'd like to be part of that conversation, 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. So we're talking about the challenges of immigration. We're talking about the need to kind of meet in the middle on some of these things. We're talking about the challenge of trying to get the uh, these crises resolved. And I said that it's really four crises. There's one at the southern border that we're dealing with that has our immediate problem. We have the more long-term challenge of dealing with the undocumented who are in our country now and of also how you keep the bad guys out. And the wall is just part of it. Obviously, we need – Plenty more enforcement, but frankly, many of our enforcement agents are focusing on those other things when they probably should be focusing on things like keeping out gang members, keeping drugs, interdicting drugs and the like. But I said there was a fourth challenge in immigration that had vexed me, one that I did not have an answer to, and perhaps it's the one that I should because I've got the experience around it. And let me give you some background. First of all, you know, many of you who are in the New York City area know I used to be a member of Congress served on the Judiciary Committee, ran for mayor a couple of times, was a member of the New York City Council. So I'm familiar with the moving parts involved in immigration. But the challenge that we have today, the, the, the biggest challenge in solving the immigration crisis is essentially that politicians are afraid to do their job. That the challenge today, the existential threat that politicians face is Democrats don't fear Republicans running against them. And Republicans really don't fear Democrats running against them. The way districts have been drawn so perfectly over the course of the last 20 or 30 years to make safe Democrat and Republican districts, then now the challenge that most politicians of their own party, from the extremes of their own party. So Democrats are fearful of being called not progressive or liberal enough by those in their party who believe, I don't think anyone believes in truly open borders, but who believe that most of the stuff that I've said about enforcement you shouldn't do. They're fearful to stand up to those people. And on the right, and this is a much bigger problem, frankly, in the Republican Party, and I'm just saying, I'm not saying that because I'm a Democrat, but it's just, it's true. On the right, you have the challenge that common sense, middle of the ground, middle of the road Republicans, even conservative Republicans, they're afraid of antagonizing or doing anything on immigration that would lead to their wing of their party, saying that what they're doing is amnesty. So even guys like Marco Rubio, the, a golden boy of, the, of conservative politics, 
basically is now not ever going to be president because he had the audacity of working with the other two-thirds of Congress and trying to come up with a solution to this. And I don't know what the answer is. And the other element of the politicians not being allowed to do their job is that, you know, I mentioned earlier about the wall. You know, it is very easy to make this issue into a platitude. Build the wall and you solve the problems. And it is very difficult to do the, the true nuance and context necessary here. But I don't know what it takes for politicians to basically say, I'm going to be courageous enough to take this step. Presidents Bush, President Obama, President um, Biden, even to some degree President Trump, I think that if presented with a package that a little bit from the left, a little bit from the right, but a lot from the middle, they might do it. But it's hard to do in this environment. I mean, it is really hard to do. So we're going to take take some calls here. Also, as I mentioned a little bit later in the show, we are going to hear the, the latest crazy twist in the Hunter Biden laptop story. And Curtis is going to be here to talk to us a little bit about Curtis uh, Curtis's experience down with the the subway shooter. Um, and uh, but what we'll do now is let's go to the phones. The, the boards have filled up. Immigration has a way of doing that. Uh, let's go to Bob in New Jersey, who has uh, some ideas of his own about the border crisis. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining us. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing um, well. Yeah, I I think the uh, control has got to be taken away from the cartels, the drug cartels. And the way you do that, I think, is first you got to finish the wall, and two, you have to somehow bring the immigration people into Mexico to try to interview the people before they come into this country and to see who they are, where they're coming from, what their status is. I know that sounds complicated, but it stops it at the border and it allows you to do something before people come into the country. Yeah, that's I mean, Bob, I think, you know, as I said, OK, let's let's build a wall. But remember something about about this notion of disempowering the cartels, the people that are lined up that are really making the so-called crisis of the moment are people that are showing up at our border that are doing things lawfully. It's not the, the – I mean people are being smuggled in at approximately about the same rates as they always have been. That's – and one of the reasons that people are showing up on these asylum lines is because they – don't have any other kind of good route to come in. But as far as interviewing them on the Mexican side, look, we have a we have a border crisis that also on the Mexican side, th- those border towns are completely overrun. Remember, a lot of these are children that are coming in. And part of what we need to do, though, is whether it's on the Mexican side or on the U.S. side, is do it more quickly. As I said in my intro, we have to do this more quickly and more efficiently. Right now, the message is getting out that, yeah, I can get on the asylum line and I can be in process, quote unquote, for years. And that isn't the way to do it. Stefano in the Bronx, what do you think about the border? Thanks for checking in. Stefano, are you there? Yep. Go ahead, buddy. You're on the air. Can you hear me? I can, sir. All right. Sorry. First of all, I I wish you could get through the minute that you want to say, because by the time the time comes, you always forget what you wanted to say. But <laughs> anyway, um, I consider myself a pretty much down the middle kind of guy. Uh, pretty much, I would say, fiscal conservative, uh, more social libertarian, because truthfully, I think if you break it down, you can't be a social libertarian unless you're a fiscal conservative, because everyone's good with doing good for people. But how do you do that? You need money to be money. <laughs> so, you know, we keep... Uh, just as an example, individualize a problem 
And then it takes us a long time, first of all, to individualize it. Then it takes a long time to get it funded. And I'm just going to give you, throw you an example out there. Like, we've always had this issue. So our last administration comes up with this bribe. Okay, great. So finally, after years and years, we recognize that we need these issues to be taken care of. So we come up with drive. We come up with $850 million, And they disappear. So now we're back to square one again. Well, you know, but anyway, I but I got to tell you, thank you very much, Stefano. But I, I tell you, you know, part of the challenge of the immigration issue is that it's not new. You know, there is not a heck of a lot. You know, there, I hear it all the time. I support immigration if people come in legally, if they come in the way – my parents and grandparents said, hey, this asylum situation was exactly the same than it is now. The, the, the history of people coming through the gates at Ellis Island, turning to the person behind them and saying, get out of my country, that's part of what it means to be an American almost. It happened to my, my ancestors. It happened probably to all of yours. This is not a new problem. We have been wrestling this with a long time. But, you know, we have about 13 percent of our country is first-generation American. Meaning that they're that they were born in another country, um, and that's higher than it's been, but still relatively low compared to other countries. It's lower than Germany, lower than Austria, lower than Canada. But we are always going to have this tension of people who are always going to want to be here. And I'll tell you something else: we want the best and the brightest. We want the most ambitious. We want the hardest working from other countries to come here. We want that. I mean, imagine if today we had a system that all of the smartest computer folks in Russia all left and came to the United States. You know, it's just the drain that that would have on the country. We want that kind of thing. So this is not a new problem. But let's go to Chris in Monroe. Chris, do you have some thoughts about the border solution? Hey, Anthony, how are you? Well, I, I don't have a solution, that's for sure. But I just want to say that, you know, I listen to you guys. I listen to you. I've been listening to you since you've been on here uh, and then with you and Curtis. And 99% of the time, I'm like, man, I got to call this guy and tell him, oh, geez, you're, you're way off base. But I will say this. Everything you said about the whole immigration thing, pretty much everything is right on the money. I mean, you made common sense. You know, uh, uh, you know you didn't, you haven't, you're not going in any weird directions or anything, but you just, you just made sense, man. You know, the, and especially the fact that, People have to stay, you know, if they're going to stay for two or three years, they're going to disappear, you know, and the whole thing is for naught. Yeah, well, I I appreciate it. I I especially appreciate that you're surprised that I make sense. I know I have that effect on, on some people sometimes. But, Chris, you're exactly right. One of the things, and this is something that some of my friends on the left don't seem to understand. They're insane. People who seek to come to this country, they watch what we're doing and they learn quickly. So when I said that there are a lot of people who are seeking economic solutions by being on the asylum line, it's because that's the only place that they can go. Uh, you know, people will will figure out ways to come here to protect their family, to find economic freedom for their family, to protect their kids. And let's keep something in mind here. This is this is a time that we're unified in our our expressions of our religious faith. No matter what your religious faith is this this time of year, you're thinking big thoughts. You're thinking thoughts of gratitude, whether it be for Easter or Pesach or Ramadan. These are children, okay? These are unaccompanied children. A child from Nicaragua, a child from Honduras has not committed any crime. They're not an illegal. They're a human being that we have to try to figure out what to do with. But a mother is not going to bring their child across the border if they think that it's not going to succeed in having them stay there. 
and or if they think it'll take two years before this gets sorted out. They'll only come if they think that they can show that they are truly being persecuted, that they're truly at risk, that they're truly endangered. And that quickness, that speed and that surety of the system is very important to have. And that's true if you're going to have successful laws on any level, but certainly in immigration. Next, we have Edward calling from Chicago, Illinois. Edward, thank you for checking in today. Yeah, Anthony. So my thing uh, is that um, so we don't hold up commerce. Uh, we really need to get serious about military operations limited between Nicaragua and Mexico. That's my idea. Me, to t- tell me more what you're saying. Well, targeting the cartels. I'm not talking about the caravan people coming up north. Particularly right. the cartels is what we're talking about, obviously. Right. I mean, look, here's the here's what we have done traditionally. And that's a it's a good point, Edward. I appreciate your calling. What we've done traditionally is try to support stable governments in Latin America. We've tried to keep them on their feet to be able to do the job that they can to interdict drugs. Now, we hear all the time from those countries, you gringos up north, you complain about immigration, you complain about gangsters, you complain about drugs, and then you consume our drugs like crazy. You're not being helpful. And there's some truth to that. I think we have to figure out the demand side as well. But that's that's why I say the tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of money in the federal budget that we devote to supporting these countries winds up coming back in spades because it a stable country, a country that can handle a famine, a famine or a, a storm or a country that can handle a disease in its own borders means that those people don't flow into our country and – our immigration policies can withstand. And I mean, look, there's a certain common thread here to all of these things. And that is that they're solvable problems, but you need to be able to give a little bit in both directions. And those of my colleagues on the left, that means you need to give a little bit on the idea of having quick and in some cases severe consequences if you violate immigration laws. On the right, it means recognizing that not All of the undocumented that are showing up at our borders are the same, that there are some that are of value. There are some that help support our economy. There are some that truly are in need, and there are some that are doing it completely lawfully and that we should honor that. And also on the right, we have to to say that, look, enforcement is important, but it is not the be-all and end-all. We are not going to enforce our way out of this problem. We are not going to round up 11.4 undocumented people. We are not going to take five-year-old and six-year-old kids and lock them up in cages. We're just not going to do that. That's not who we are as a country. And if we keep in mind this kind of, this kind of center space, this kind of common sense middle, then I think that immigration policies can be improved and we can solve these crises once and for all. But if we don't figure out a way to let politicians be less afraid of doing their job, none of it's going to get resolved. When we come back from the break, I don't know how else to put it. It is a bizarre interview that was uh, that was given by John Paul Mac Isaac. He is the guy that got the Hunter Biden laptop. He is the one that originally started this whole cascade of things. And you heard me talk about it a couple of weeks ago. I'm something of an expert of this now. I'm not ready to write a book or anything, although I recommend that Miranda Devine wrote a book. You should get that. But even she might be surprised if she hears what we have uh, that we have for you on the other side of the break. And, of course, Curtis coming in at the top of the hour. Talk about the subway shooter. 
Hochul's terrible week. And also, can your local police officer smoke pot when he gets home? Is he allowed? Thanks for being here. See you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. We have all kinds of Elvis going on on the show today. Welcome back. My name's Anthony Weiner. I am the left side of left versus right. Curtis Lee will be joining us at the top of the hour to talk about uh, some of the issues of the day. He has been very kind to let me do the first hour. I'm learning this as I go, trying to uh, bring some new issues to the fore, try to have some real conversations, and I really appreciate uh, all of you have called in. If you'd like to get on the board, 800-848-WABC, 848-9222. The great conversation about immigration, but I, there's something about the Hunter Biden laptop story I cannot stay away from. Most, most of my colleagues on the left just don't want to talk about it. I love it because I now know it pretty well. I did a whole show on it, not last week, but the week before. You can find it at uh, wabcradio.com on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And by the way, you can subscribe to the show there. If you can't be with us every week between 2 to 4 on Saturday, you can subscribe. It will automatically appear in your feed. Best way to search is actually left versus right. You'll get my show. You, you, you'll, you'll get the show that Han does. And um, and you can find the show I did about, about uh, Hunter Biden. And there are a lot of elements of this story. But one of the big elements that is constantly harped upon here on, on uh, 77 WABC Talk Radio is the big cover-up that took place to keep the Hunter Biden laptop from being really uh, discussed and talked about when it came out just a month before the 2020 election. And I covered this issue extensively when I talked about it, and I pointed out that there were so many things that were so suspicious about this laptop. The fact that it came out when it did, the fact that once again it was emails, the fact that that our intelligence agencies were warning that this was the way the Russians were going to – they were – you know, it just looked very suspicious. But one of the things that made it very suspicious and made it very difficult for other newspapers besides the New York Post to write about it is that no one wanted to share the laptop. No one wanted to share a copy of the hard drive with the other newspapers. In fact, when the person that had it, and I don't want to name names, I'll just say that he's a host on on uh, on WABC and he's one that you should listen to and he's a former mayor, would not give a copy of this laptop to any newspaper besides the New York Post. He even told the, the, the New York Times no when they asked about Washington Post. Results. So they wrote stories, but they couldn't have accessed the laptop to see what it really was. So it a lot of it was that kind of suspicion. Now that it's been widely shared, a lot of elements of the laptop have been confirmed to be authentic, including the financial stuff. And I, as I said a couple of weeks ago, looks terrible for Hunter Biden. But there are some crazy things about that hard drive. For example, on the hard drive, there are folders called Mail, Suspicious, suspicious Picks Package, and Big Guy File. Obviously, Hunter Biden didn't put those on the laptop. Someone else did. There's all kinds of evidence now that it's been analyzed of files being put on both before and after this drive became public. 
And so one of the people that can answer questions about all this is the original shopkeeper in Delaware that the laptop was dropped off at, who took the laptop, turned it over to the FBI, and eventually turned it over to sources close to Mayor Giuliani, who, and then it became public in the New York Post. So this fellow did an interview this week on a, a, on a right-wing media outlet called Real America's Voice. His name is John Paul Mac Isaac. I'm convinced he added the Mac just to do business with Apple more. Um, and he was asked about some of the some of the information that is out there about the laptop, when he got it, what made him decide to turn it over, what he was concerned about. Um, and and he said some interesting things. And 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 he, and and one of the things he said is that that he turned it over to the FBI, was thrilled to get it, but that he kept a copy of it so that he would have some some protection. And then he also said this. That's what caused me to do a deep dive in the laptop once it became my property. During that time, I saw a lot of photos. I did not see a lot of photos that are being reported to be seen. Now, with that said, uh, I do know that there have been multiple attempts over the past year and a half to uh, insert questionable material into the laptop, as in not physically, but passing it off this misinformation or disinformation as coming from the laptop. And that is a major concern of mine because I have fought tooth and nail to protect the integrity of this drive. And to to jeopardize that is going to mean that everything that I sacrifice will be for nothing. Okay. Now, that was a little bit confusing. It wasn't terribly – it was a little confusing. But what he said there is that as he's been watching this debate – he said he's been seeing things that were being characterized as been on the drive that were not there. Meaning he's saying things were being alleged to have been part of the laptop debate that were not from the laptop. And he is 100% right about that. For example, this whole guy, this guy Bobolivsky, Bobolusky, all of the stuff that he's alleging about Hunter Biden and about Joe Biden, people are describing it as being something that was found on the laptop. It's not. A lot of the stuff that is on the laptop that was discovered when when other publications started, to, they finally got a copy of the hard drive, were stuff that had been put on, as he said, he said, were being inserted into the conversation that were not from the laptop. And he's right about that. That is happening. That a lot of people are saying things are on the laptop that are not. And there's also a lot of the, the data that was on the laptop when people started to look at it, when they finally got access to it, it was more than just the New York Post that had it said that they can't tell when it was put on the laptop. He said that sometimes there's there's metadata that showed that it was inserted after the laptop was turned over to the FBI. Some of it was put into spe- files like I described earlier, like there's one there's one file on the laptop called big guy file. <laughs> that was clearly someone took a lot of the documents that were on the file and combined them, but they also could have inserted something. And I'm pointing all of this out because the the uh, much has been made about the laptop that just doesn't hold up. But I'll tell you what does hold up that Hunter Biden was involved in financial relationships that look really bad. That he was involved in relationships with Chinese entities. He was involved in entities with Burisma, a Ukrainian entity that are just don't look good. Also, we now know or we've heard that he might be prosecuted for, I mean, he might get indicted for things to do with that laptop. 
But one of the things that absolutely is not on the laptop, and I defy anyone to call in and tell me what does, it doesn't attach anything to Joe Biden. There's really nothing there on that front. But I just want to return to this notion of was the media right to be suspicious about this laptop? And the answer is yes. I mean, there's just a lot of things. It's kind of like someone, one of the experts that took a look at it, so one of the um, one of the technology guys who does forensic examinations of laptop said that it was kind of like a crime scene with McDonald's wrappers lying all around it. Like the, 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 the dock, the, the hard drive itself had been so polluted with other people copying it, taking it, adding things to it, subtracting things from it that it was really hard to figure out what was news. And I just want to reiterate, when this was coming out in October of 2020, by the way, every major newspaper did a story about the New York Post stories. But all of these newspapers were also had been burned four years earlier when the Russians attacked our country by hacking the DNC, hacking John Podesta, and then using it to influence the election. So that the notion there was some kind of big cover-up didn't happen. But what did happen was that Twitter handled it terribly, tried to stop the story from being circulated. That turned out to be a big mistake. They reversed themselves. Um, but the idea that this laptop is an open and shut case clearly isn't uh, the case. And we have some people who are on the line who want to talk about this at 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Uh, Dave in Long Island, I'm sorry to keep you holding so long. Thank you for, for joining in. No problem, brother. Worth the wait. Um, I've been listening to you with the laptop, and I'm glad you just said what you said, that it has nothing to do with Joe Biden. Everybody keeps saying that. That's a Democrat talking point. Just think about taking a ride on Air Force Two to China multiple times and coming back with all these big money deals. Joe did not know. They're on the same plane together. Why was his son coming to China? He absolutely knew what he was doing. He had to have known. And that's a lot of money we're talking about. You don't talk to your father. Hey, Dad, I just scored $31 million. Not a word of it. Well, let me let me tell you, David, and I, I appreciate it. Look, first of all, rides on Air Force One, if they are signs that you know what your kids are doing or what business they are involved in, there were 31 times that 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 um, during the Trump years that family members took right. And I'm talking to the ones that were in the administration, non non um, administrative officials that, you know, family members on Air Force One happens all the time. Family members on Air Force Two happens all the time. People bring family members. The description of that trip, there's photographs on the on the White House website of photographs of the Biden family in China doing Chinese touristy things. But there's no doubt about it. It certainly helped Hunter Biden that his name was Biden, that he came there with with Vice President Biden. It definitely helped, no doubt about it. But if you read the emails that are actually validated and confirmed that are on the laptop, it has Hunter Biden saying things, I have no idea what dad's going to do. He doesn't know. He doesn't have information about this. Or or there's even emails of Hunter being pissed off because his father, he doesn't talk to his father about stuff, that they're, they're estranged and don't talk. Well, they're not estranged, but they don't talk about these things. There's not a question. And by the way, if what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you don't like the idea of family members going to China and doing business deals, then you must be furious at Donald Trump when Ivanka went over and got copyrights in a matter of months that usually take years and years to get from the Chinese. Okay, there is no doubt about it. Hunter Biden transacted his family name for his benefit. If that is the crime that he is going to be charged with, first of all, that happens Far too often that people who have famous last names benefit from it. 
with the name like Wiener, I'm I'm quite certain I did not benefit from it. But Mitch McConnell's wife, Donald Trump's family, left and right. Donald Trump's sons were traveling, going to India and doing hotel deals when they promised they wouldn't. All, And I'm not saying that Donald Trump did anything illegal. I'm just saying that because Hunter Biden cashed in on his last name and took a trip on Air Force Two is not exactly an open and shut case. When we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Then at the top of the hour, we're going to hear from uh, we're going to spend some time with the right part of left versus right. Curtis Sliwa. He has a great uh, just a, he finds these things. I don't know how he does this. He has a great story about uh, whether your neighborhood police officer, when they get home, are permitted under the rules of their township to smoke marijuana. And we're also going to hear a little bit more about uh, Hunter Biden when we get back. The phone lines are still have one or two more slots open if you want to join the conversation. 800-848-WABC. This is 77 Talk Radio, also heard on WABCRadio.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you on the other side. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. Welcome back. I'm Anthony Weiner on the left. Curtis Sliwa on the right will be joining us at the top of the hour. We've been talking about the two. I don't know. If you want to light up the boards here at 77 WABC, immigration and Hunter Biden's laptop is surely the way to do it. And I, I have to tell you, um, I, you know, part of the, the way that I, I approach this, I'm only here once a week and I'm grateful for that opportunity. But I listen to the to the station, I listen to the to the issues that come up, and sometimes I'm scratching my head, and I like I want to learn more about this immigration. I already knew some going in, but Hunter Biden, I learned a great deal, and have really dug. I, I have my file here that's an inch thick, and uh, every time I hear another Hunter Biden story, um, I go in, I try to figure out what got to the bottom of it, and we played on the other on the, the other side. We played the guy who actually had the laptop, saying that he keeps hearing about stuff that's on the laptop that he. The guy that had the laptop, who has a copy of the laptop, says isn't on there. It should make us all a little bit suspicious. But I do know that the stuff that has been confirmed as being legit does not look good for Hunter Biden. Um, but it also doesn't seem to be anything that Joe Biden is involved with. But there are some people on the board who want to disagree with that. Stephen Massapequa, you've been holding on. I appreciate it. What do you think is on the laptop? Hey, Anthony, I have a question. So when he talks, when Hunter complains that he has to pay his father for the last 30 years, all the expenses, the houses, the phones. I mean, that's very well documented. Do you think that's fake? And then also I'm interested in um, your thoughts about the diary that's been released and if you think that Joe Biden actually walked in on the daughter in the shower. Well, uh, first of all, as far as the information, he, he, there a lot of the stuff, and a lot of this, by the way, was not on the uh, was both on on the laptop, but also in an article done in 2019 in the New Yorker, where a lot of this stuff also got revealed. Look, he was complaining at that time about everything about his dad. This was not so. He was basically he was he was in the throes of addiction. He was complaining that a lot of the 
day-to-day stuff that he had to pay for. He says, I pay the bills for this family. He doesn't say, I pay my dad. That is not what the email says. He says, I pay the bills for this family. And he was complaining about the idea that he does not, and a lot of other emails go into this, he does not get enough credit for being the good Biden. Okay, he's basically in a constant tussle with his, with where he is placed in the family. He has a lot of resentment. And it does not say anything about paying his dad. And it doesn't say anything about paying his dad with Chinese money. It doesn't say anything about paying his dad with Ukrainian money. And by the way, Joe Biden released his tax returns. If you think that, that it's, the, that that's what's on the laptop, then okay, then let's wait, let's wait and see. But there's not, a, of all the financial transactions that were found on the laptop, and there are lots of them, there are none that show money going from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden. It's just not there. Um, next up, we have Tom in South Jersey. Tom, about Hunter Biden laptop, thanks for holding on and thanks for joining us. Hey, Anthony. The reason I think you're wrong about the president's involvement is when you follow the money trail on this thing, there's a big set of question marks. And it is likely to show that money was in shared accounts transferred for benefits to the father. And, of course, uh it doesn't have to be on the laptop. Your point, you keep saying over and over, the laptop doesn't involve the president. You're probably right. They're not, they're, they were stupid, but not that stupid. The question is, Watergate, follow the money. I Listen, that's a perfectly fair thing to say, and I got to tell you, Tom, I think you hit it right on the head. People are making this laptop into something that it's not. If you think that Hunter, that Joe Biden got money illegally or got money unethically or did something wrong, okay, then just say it. But don't say that this laptop shows it. And that's what, that's what, um, the, the laptop from hell book implies. That's what this guy Bobolewski says. That's what many people who call into this, this network, uh, uh, say is that the laptop shows dot, dot, dot. It does not. It shows a lot of things about Hunter Biden's activities that I think are at, at, Best embarrassing, and at worst, if it turns out he didn't pay taxes or if it looks like he did lobbying and didn't file the proper documents or if he was sloppy about something, well, it's DOJ. It's in the hands of a prosecutor that was appointed by Donald Trump. It's in the hands of a prosecutor that was not replaced at the beginning of Biden's terms as it could have been because they want to make sure there's no appearance. And just so far, nothing shows that Joe Biden was connected to it. James in Jersey City, do you agree? Thanks for calling in. Uh, No, I don't. I think that – Bobulinski a year ago basically testified that the father was involved and we're supposed to ignore that testimony altogether and throw it out. And they did. They basically did ignore it for a whole year while they assumed the laptop was disinformation from Russia, like the BS about your DNC hack. Well, well, There's never any proof that Russia did that either, by the way. Well, well wait a minute. The, the, the DNC hack, the, the Department of Justice uh, um, has, has indictments of people that they accuse of doing it. I think, that, I think that they did a pretty thorough job. There's some evidence of that. But let me just make it clear. Bobolivsky, Bobolivsky is a perfect example. He did not, quote unquote, testify to anything. As a matter of fact, his his email messages, his text messages, his WhatsApp messages that he say show Joe Biden's involvement. Have have you seen them? I haven't seen them. No one has seen them. Oh, wait a minute. That's not true. Two two sources have seen them. The Fox News and The Wall Street Journal. Both of them have seen these so-called text messages and both of them came to the conclusion that it was not connected to Joe Biden and said so. On the other side, your friend and mine, Curtis Lee, the right portion of Left versus Right. Thank you so much for joining us on this important day. It's great to have you with us. See you on the other side.
It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station 77 WABC. What is this, Anthony? It's Bob Mould. No wonder why I don't like it. Wow, your taste in music and my taste in music couldn't be more different. What? Yeah, but, you know, I got to tell you, ever since I've started doing this show with you, and you've taught me so much, but it's really been Kevin that's been giving me the tips on what makes a good intro radio song. And it's really a special type of song. It has a nice jingo. It has to... Has to crescendo a little bit. Yes. Has to give you a little bit of lead in. It's not every song works. No, and it should match your personality. The kind of music you like. This way, you could riff off of it. You could say, "I remember 1978. Right. I was in the fourth row. We were doing Puff Puff Pass." Oh no, no. <laughs> Although, if you're a cop, well, wait later on in the show. This is going to blow a lot of people's minds. If you're a cop in New Jersey. You can now smoke marijuana or use any marijuana products off-duty. If you're a cop in New York State, even though the same law applies, it's legal recreational use of marijuana, you are forbidden from using marijuana, and you will continue to be tested. But we'll talk about that later on. Uh, Right now, we're in the midst of Pesach. We're in the midst of Easter, Ramadan. Uh, Two things that I know in growing up, because I wasn't exposed to Ramadan, is that your peeps and my peeps have something very much in common this holiday. We spend an inordinate amount of time looking for eggs in our backyards, in parks, in green areas. You know, first of all, have you seen the price of a dozen eggs? It's almost like they're Fabergé eggs now when you go on an Easter egg roll or an Easter egg hunt. But I notice your peeps... They'll turn the lights off, they have the wooden spoon, they have the Chavez candle, and they're looking for breadcrumbs in advance. Any bread must be removed from their house. And I'm suggesting maybe next year, Anthony, that I become the bread man. I'm the righteous Gentile. Did you see the price of a loaf of bread? Sell me your bread, those of you who are observant. I'll buy all the bread out there and get it out of your house for the eight days of Pesach. Well, you know, that is, and I am far, far from an expert, but, you know, this is what you do with your dishes that are not kosher for Passover, is you theoretically hand them off to a righteous Gentile like yourself for a fee. And you say, can you hold this stuff? Because it's not even supposed to be in our home. But the comets, the, the stuff that is the bread gets burnt on the street corners in Borough Park and Flatbush and the like. But... uh yeah, and that's uh, with the inflation being what it is. There's a certain I don't know what is the egg the egg you think we hunt for. I mean, there's an egg on the Seder plate. No, no, you're hunting for the breadcrumbs because you got to get rid of all I breadcrumbs. See. I see. Yes, How I mean be- there, there there is an egg on the Seder plate as well. I mean, there's this is really a great a great time of year. All the monotheistic religions have really important days. To you know, I talked a little about immigration today. Passover is an immigration story. Easter, not so much. Ramadan, not really an immigration story, but it is the thing. I mean, this is an important time, and a lot of people at this time are traveling to family members and 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 being reunited around around their faith. This is a this is a great time of year and a, a very meaningful time of year. 
but it's also a time of year that um, that you know we, as we all share our, uh, our our traditions. I wonder, given your experience, are people listening to the radio for that? I guess they are because they're 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 uh, they're on their way to to, to Grandma's house. They're on their way to the. They're not on their way to the Seder because they, they wouldn't be driving, but. Um, this, this is, is this a good radio day since, uh, since so, so many of these traditions are being practiced today? Well, it's, it's like anything else. Um, if this was old school, we'd be in trouble with Roman Catholics because you're supposed to give up what you love, no matter what it is during all of Lent until the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Right. Now the Protestants are totally into the resurrection. This is, that's why you don't see many crosses with Protestants. But the Roman Catholics, it's all about uh, Good Friday, the crucifixion. But the the bottom line, you're supposed to be giving things up. So as a kid, having gone to Roman Catholic school, the Josephite nuns, Irish nuns, they said, okay, what are you going to give up for Lent? It has to be something you really love. And you know there are a lot of our listeners, they love radio. So old school would have been you got to give up either watching TV or listening to radio. Uh, thank God, thank Hashem, they're no longer doing that. Uh, but that would have been bad for us. And then, of course, you have people who need to be entertained, especially those who are on their own. Remember, we always think, oh, they have large families, large right. gathering, lots of friends. New York City, as you know, is a city where there are a lot of people when it comes to holidays who are completely on their own. Uh, call them shut-ins, uh, call them living by themselves for whatever means. And we are their friend. We are their extension to everything that's going on. And holidays make them very depressed, very depressed. And yet we're able to sort of lift right. them up because we are part of their extended family. No, this is the, the intimacy of radio is is something that can't be that that uh, that can't be replaced. So this has been you. Ha- you've had quite a week. I mean, this subway shooter, who, by the way, is, is as you know, who was arrested right around the corner from from where I live in, in the East Village. You were down there within uh, you were. I, I, I would turn on the radio within an hour of when this all got reported. You were reporting live from the scene. Pretty remarkable, A, that this happened, B, that no one perished, and C, the kind of what went into both the investigation to try to catch the guy in the crazy way that he was eventually caught with the help of a lot of citizens. But you were right there at, at, at the point. What, what, what did you take? Anything that truly surprised you in all of this? What stunned me? is that uh, in the aftermath, obviously, I wasn't there at the time of the shooting or immediately after. But when I got there, a 36th Street, very heavily trafficked station, it's where the R, N, and D uh, converge. There had been no cops there before, and the cops were like the last to arrive at the scene. The first people to arrive at the scene were MTA workers and the fire department. Right. The cops, they have the 72nd Precinct. It's just a few blocks away on 4th Avenue. I was stunned. Had the lack of police there initially, and then to find out from MTA personnel, I said, "Oh, well, you're going to have a treasure chest of all these videos. Look at all these cameras here. Uh, uh, um, they're not working. What do you mean they're not working? What about on the other stations? Well, they're not working on the 25th Street. They're not working on 45th. And so we we learned out of this very quickly." Is that the tech and technology that we've spent as taxpayers millions of dollars for? was working better in the bodega upstairs on 4th Avenue than it was in the subway system. And what an embarrassment. There are 10,000 cameras in the subway system in 472 stations. And a lot of them are not working. In fact, it was uh, DiNapoli, the controller, in 2018, put out a big audit 
said about a third of the cameras are not working and they're not being maintained by the contractor, the person that got the contract. Uh, MTA people have told me, Curtis, it's even worse. And you'd say, wow, that's the first thing we really have to upgrade because we were basically going on cell phone um, uh, circulated videos and photos. You notice we didn't really have MTA videos and photographs at first. Even though... What's interesting is since that contract was led and since a lot of this infrastructure was installed, now that we do have cell service in the subways, you could probably have a system that is much more sophisticated if you invested in it today. But, yes, there there weren't there, – there wasn't cell, cell image. But I tell you, even if you did, remember, this guy got on at a different station, got off at this, at, at this station, was captured on, on other videotape. One thing I, I I've heard a couple of different versions of this. Did he leave the express and get on a local train to flee the scene? Had you heard that 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 is how no. he he got away? That didn't happen. No, because uh, he uh, he immediately just took it another stop. That train closed its doors, took it another stop. Because remember, the MTA personnel was back on the train, back on the train. Right. Except the people who were wounded were out on the platform being tended right. to by other uh, strap hangers themselves. And so it went one stop to 25th Street in which he left. Got it. Then he's walking past uh, the uh, Greenwood Cemetery. So they see yeah. him on video, Greenwood Cemetery. Uh, and then he, he jumps on a city bus. He goes over uh, to Park Slope, right by 7th Avenue, where the F train is. Yeah. Uh, he first buys a mask. Wow, get this. The guy has just shot people, killed him, but he knows the rules and regulations to ride in some ways. You have to have a mask, so he stops at a little convenience store. They have him on video. Then he takes the F train, and apparently he's riding for hours and hours, but he had discarded his uh, yellow construction cap and his uh, orange vest and made him look like one of the village people, you know, the construction guy and the village people. And he's riding and riding around. Then he goes to 20th Street. We find out that he was staying, staying at the International Hostel, right across the street from the 10th Precinct. Yeah. He's right there. And then in the morning, he begins to roam about. He goes uh, to Chinatown. He stays outside of a very trendy restaurant. He's sitting there in one of the uh, shacks. He then walks over to uh, Delancey. He said, catch his deli. The next thing he knows, he's in your neighborhood. He's on 6th Street and 1st Avenue and Mickey T's. He needs to recharge his uh, batteries cell phone, yeah. and buy some burgers, and he calls in. Crime Stoppers, he says, I've been seeing myself all over TV. I'm here. Come get me. And I would bet you, Anthony, they were getting pranked all day for hours, you know, because people were, oh, he's here, he's here, he's everywhere, that they hesitated. He was there for 20 minutes, according mm-hmm. to eyewitnesses. Then he picked up and left, started walking down uh, First Avenue, and that's where Zach, the uh, Syrian yeah. immigrant uh-huh. who speaks five languages, yep. who's like a bundle of energy, he and his uh, two colleagues who are installing, get this, surveillance cameras, maybe we should give them the contract <laughs> for the MTA. They see him, and they flag down one of the police cars, and then they pull him over, and they go up to him, and they say, oh, uh, James, right? And he said, yes, I've been waiting for you. And now you know the rest of the story. But it was not the best day for law enforcement, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, but it does. I, I tell you, it's a reminder of a couple of things that we are never it, – it, it's impossible to consider yourself ever hermetically sealed and completely safe in any environment, but particularly in the subways. And it's also worth noting that the long history that this guy had with the law 
He never crossed over, at least in terms of what was adjudicated, into felonies. So he was this constant troublemaker for law enforcement spanning decades. Um, but because he didn't get the famous felony word on his, you know, he was able to purchase a, a gun that for whatever reason, intentionally, by the luck of God, but whatever it is, the fact that no one, that, that, that no one died in, from, um, from this is, is truly remarkable. But you're right. I mean, it was a day. We're so used to these things being, you know, being captured quickly and we're so used to crime procedurals ending after an hour, everything gets wrapped up. Um, but uh, but it'll be it'll be fascinating to see what and you know I got to tell you even the most experienced person in the subways had paused that day. Um, I spoke to I spoke to a couple of people who said they didn't want to get on the subway that day. Yep. Uh, and they, believe me, you know this is the problem with the perception about crime. It has ripple effects throughout our economy, throughout our lives. And um, and but it was a, a, a definitely a traumatic few days for New Yorkers. Now, showing you about the video capacity above ground, the video worked as advertised. So he's coming over the Verrazano Bridge at four o'clock in the morning, the day of the shooting, because he had rented that uh, U-Haul van in Philadelphia. Where, by the way, he had an Airbnb. <laughs> he was yeah. staying there. This guy had some coin. Remember, not a debit card, a credit card. He had some coin. It's true. He hadn't been in trouble since 2007. A lot of people, oh, big rapper. Between 2007 and now, he had no, he hadn't crossed law enforcement in any capacity, even getting a fine. So he had kept his nose clean. Now, his rantings and ravings on YouTube were another thing. But to me, that's not crime. That's what a lot of Americans do. And I watched a lot of them, and I said, but he doesn't specifically say he's going to go out and kill anybody. Right. You know, he's just ranting and raving. So it's 4 o'clock. He finds a parking space over on West 4th, your old district. Gravesend, yeah. Gravesend on King's Highway. Parks the van. Uh, gets on the end train, goes about eight stops, and it was at 36th Street right before they pulled into the station going towards Manhattan that he decided, okay, I'm releasing the two smoke bombs, I'm putting my gas mask on, and then he just starts to fire into this smoke-filled car, which you can't get out of because you can't go between the cars and the end train. And so you're right. Thank God nobody was killed, but he had other clips. Yeah. If he were able to use the other clips because his gun jammed, there would have been far more deaths. For instance, the moment I heard of that, I thought Colin Ferguson, 1993. That's right. When he went up and down one Railroad, car, yeah. he shot and killed six. He injured 16 others. And in some circumstances, it was a similar thing. They're both very emotionally disturbed right. persons. But everything above ground worked out fine. Everything below ground, I think it requires a full-scale investigation. To this moment, the MTA will not let us know. Uh, about the cameras, what's working, what's not working. There's no transparency. And remember, that's not on Eric Adams' watch. He's not responsible for that. Right. That's Hochul. That's the state agency, the MTA. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty, it's it's another pretty good argument for why the trains, at least in New York City, should be under New York City control. But you're right, the MTA is under, frankly, you know, we create these authorities so that politicians don't have true accountability over them. So when things like fares go up, the politicians can say it wasn't my fault. But this is a circumstance where we actually do want accountability. And, yeah, I mean, the, 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 it, it seems like there's all kinds of video stuff that came from places that were not the subway. I mean, there's all kinds of clips of where he was walking and what he was doing. He was um, not hiding. Now, the other thing, now that we're giving credit where credit is due, the citizens who called it in. Uh, the MTA workers who were heroic, 
uh, we have to now also award all those citizens that were doing triage. You know, uh, it was like a battlefield yeah. scene. They didn't run. Yep. They did triage for their fellow uh, strap hangers. There's one person who must be acknowledged. That is the former mayor, Rudy Giuliani. He was on at three to four, and he read a few times the license plate of the U-Haul that they were looking for, and he explained uh, all of these U-Haul have Arizona license plates, and he repeated the license plate like two or three times. One of the WABC listeners, obviously a fan of Rudy's, having a cup of coffee right there at West 4th and Kings Highway, and he says to his uh, friend, that's the man (laughs) right there. The Times, the Times gave credit to Rudy and WABC for that. I'm hoping that City Hall, when they acknowledge everybody involved, will acknowledge a WABC, but especially Rudy's effort, because he purposely went out of his way three times on his one-hour show to give that license plate number. And it just so happened, a fan of his, a listener to WABC, uh, called in the police, and they were able to uh, cordon off that area, because, I mean, that's that's where all the crime stuff is that they got, other than what he dropped uh, on that train before he fled. Yeah, it's 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 also I don't I don't know if you got I, I assume everyone got it the alert on the phone at yeah. like ten thirty in the morning that was completely useless. It gave the guy's name didn't get like if you happen to know this guy I mean it, for the five people in the city who know this guy by his name and even them you know uh, I'm not sure how completely uh, how useful it, there was no license plate on it there was no anything descriptor Nothing. or anything at all Nothing. it just all of our phones went off but um but yeah a lot of people rallied Rudy Rudy in reading that a lot of you know the the the, the cell phone tape of people rallying you know compressing wounds helping people out protecting pregnant women um you know my first thought and this this is just because of the environment that we're in is that stop was chosen because it's a heavily Asian community, and that was my first fear that it was going to be. And when who knows? I mean, from from I, I I didn't do what you did, which is watch this crazy guy's rantings. Yeah, well, um, he ranted against everyone. He ranted against everybody. Self hate, <laughs> hate against everybody. Right, right. right. Uh, and I will tell you this: uh, you live in the neighborhood. Uh, I lived for years on Avenue A, St. Mark's Place, right across from yeah. Tompkins Square Park. That's been in the news so much of late because of the homeless situation right. and the evictions of the encampments. That was one block away where he was found. What I loved was that the people who lived there, many of them hipsters and millennials, very liberal, progressive in their politics, they were cheering Zach and his partners. He was high-fiving. This guy, he was in in such joy to be an American, such joy to have him help. He was just such a great ambassador for New York. All all over the country, people are watching that and says, that is a typical New Yorker right there. yes. Radio 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. Oh, yeah, this is so you, Anthony. Oh, Wiener. come on. It's not you? This is. Oh. No way! You never catch me Dire sitting streets? around listening to this. No, no, I'm sorry, but this is this is so you. But now you're an expert on this, and I became an expert on this because of my run for the mayoralty. Even though I lost to Eric Adams, and when you were running, uh, it was the flavor of the day that candidates and then if elected 
would have to constantly reveal what their IRS filings are, and especially when now in tax season, it really uh, comes to the surface. And so after all this craziness happening in the city, the city's still struggling to recover. Eric Adams uh, recovering. Hopefully today he'll be out and about, or maybe at least by Monday, from COVID-19. He's answering some questions. It's just throwaway questions at the end. And I guess the reporter said, uh, can we see your, your tax filings? And essentially, after a little back and forth, he said, no. Well, wait a minute. It's actually easier question. He says, will you commit to releasing your taxes? And he says simply no. And I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm saying every Democrat must be having a collective heart attack saying, Eric, all of our cachet is involved in saying Trump was no good because he wouldn't release any of his tax forms. We've been knocking ourselves out trying to get it using every legal ploy we can to bring it to the surface because we think that that's going to show a lot of shade on his face. And then Eric Adams drops his bomb. I got to believe that his phone was like exploding with Democrats saying, what are you doing? You're not a wealthy man. Nobody ever thought that you had this huge trough of wealth. File your taxes. Well, you know, but here's the thing. It's changed over the course of time. It used to be a fairly normal thing that candidates would release their taxes. It wasn't even all that controversial. Who really changed it was Bloomberg, who would and famously got trolled over it left and right. I remember when I was I was just a member of Congress. I was preparing to run against him in, in, in 2005. So starting in 2000, I want to say three or four, I started just routinely releasing my taxes because it was a good thing to do yes. because – Usually it's the Democrat showing I'm a man of the people, I'm the Democrat, I'm the working stiff kind of, of course, guy. Of course. And it's the Republicans who's embarrassed by how wealthy they are. The puzzling thing, and you touched on it with the Adams thing, and by the way, he hasn't said no. He just says, no, I won't commit to it, which is a little bit of a weird way to go about this. But is you would think he would want his, his credentials as a middle-class New Yorker to be highlighted. So it could just be – he wants to make sure everything is in order. Remember, he had some problems with some filings in the past that had to go back and, and do. But I think you got to release your ta- – and I think you got to because what winds up happening, and Donald Trump learns this, is by and, – and so did Bloomberg – is by saying no, you just make reporters go bonkers and you make people who are curious about it just get more curious. Well, especially, if- Anthony, when you look at when he was running for office and now that he's mayor from the last time he filed – he doesn't have a lot of wealth. He, he pretty much is in um, de Blasio's territory, who always filed. De Blasio had two properties on 7th Avenue and 11th Street, one for him and Charlene, one that had been for his mother, and then his mother passed away. Okay, Other than that, he had really nothing. Eric Adams had the property he shared, the condo with his domestic partner in Fort Lee, and the brownstone in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and nothing else. Well, the, the bigger problem from a PR perspective... And from a political perspective, is the story about what's in your taxes, as you know, because you had this when you ran for mayor, is a couple of paragraphs on page you know, D11. It's no big deal. The story about why you won't release your taxes goes on and on. People keep asking yeah. about it. They keep raising his press conferences. So I think there's a fairly good chance that this all goes away, that he's going to wind up doing it. But here we are. We're talking about it because of the peculiar answer that he gave. Well, also and- the peculiar response the first time around a year ago. Remember, well, you know, my accountant, he was homeless. He was living in a shelter. I, I really didn't want to remove him from redoing 
my tax filings, which were bad to begin with. So I'm going to let the same guy who filed the taxes initially, who's living in a homeless shelter, who obviously has some problems, some issues, to do it again. And I'm running for mayor. Remember, he's running for mayor at that time. All these Democrats, how many accounting firms would have said, Eric, I'll do it. I'll right. do it. You right. pay me a fee, but, but I'll do it. But it winds up being, again, we're getting back to the thing is not so much about the taxes themselves. It's about all of the mishigas around the taxes. So the easiest answer is, yes, I release it. I'll take whatever slings and arrows you want to throw at me about whatever rental income I had or whatever messiness of the tax forms, which could be the thing. Um, but I'm a little bit surprised because if you – this tax, that the one that he just put together that's going to be due on Monday – this one is entirely when he was a candidate on high alert for making sure that everything is completely kosher and done with uh, every, and, every. And let me add this. Uh, when he was Brooklyn Borough president, you know, he would wear his uh, uh, he would wear his uh, windbreaker, you know, Brooklyn Borough president Eric Adams. He was always well dressed. But now, come on, Eric Adams. This is this man is GQ'd out. He's got designer suits got on, be. Ferragamo shoes. He's representing, brother. He's All representing right. now. All right, but it, it 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 conjures up questions in people's mind. Where did a Brooklyn Borough president get this kind of money? Oh no, because even the wealthy. No, even the, I don't. I don't think. Look, I don't think that anyone thinks that he's a wealthy guy. I think that I mean, he dresses well and looks good and takes takes care of himself. He's he was representing our city, but I do think that here, your this conversation is the very point that you're making. Is now here we're talking about what could possibly be in there that he's quote unquote hiding. The answer to the question is, will you release your taxes is yes, I will release my taxes. And then when you release them, you answer whatever questions about them. I mean, I remember like even when, when I did it, I would answer, did I donate enough to charity? I see that you had an investment in a fund that had oil stocks and you're an environmentalist. Yeah, you answer those questions. You take your little things. But the transparency is what you're trying to, to signify here. Remember how much we talked about it when Bloomberg – and then finally Bloomberg put out a summary of it, which yeah. was all 90 pages, and he let people only read it in a library at Bloomberg LP. It wound up being more aggravation than it was worth. We already knew the guy was a billionaire. I mean he didn't, he didn't do any fa- – he didn't do himself any favors – um, and I think that what should really happen is the next time there is a press, a press availability, he should make a point of saying, by the way, I'm going to release my taxes and then just do it someday. Then no one's paying that much attention and take whatever hit you're going to well, take. No, no, that's brilliant. That would be great advice. I have a feeling, though, he gets really obstinate, really stubborn, and he may dig in on this until logic prevails because this is just logical. It's like – we know all of a sudden you're not swimming in dough. You're probably in a better situation than you were before you were running for mayor, but probably not by much. Also, there's something else, and I think you'll agree with this, that the amount of scrutiny that he faced as a mayoral candidate wasn't all that much. No. And that he might come to the conclusion that, hey, I can stiff arm questions and get away with it without exacting – without there having much cost to me politically. Once you're the mayor – it becomes becomes harder to do that. Then the room nine guys say, all right, no, it's my job to take off the veneer here, to take off the varnish and to get to the bottom of this stuff. I think he's going to find it. Well, you know, you know, who's probably right on it and a great publication that never really gets the credit that they should. It's a nonprofit, the city, the city, their reporters go in there. They they do do a great job. Deep dig that a lot of the mainstream reporters, either they don't have time for, or their editors don't want them to do it because it's kind of hard to do it on your own if your editor said, no, 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 I'm just yeah. signing you to these three stories. But the city, he's got to watch out for the city because the city 
has exposed a lot of things that he wanted to go away over the years. I will bet you they'll probably be the first to come up with an analysis. I don't, I, you know, look, I happen to believe he is going to be pressured into releasing them. He's going to release it, and it's going to be a nothing burger. That it's it's just this is the kind I, – I think you're right. I think there is part of him, and I think this might make him a good mayor, who says I'm not going to be pushed around by public opinion. I'm going to try to do what I think is right. But sometimes that can cross over the line to being stubborn for stubbornness state. Well, sake. speaking of release, boy, if she had only released her lieutenant governor – a while back, or even in the consideration of who would be her lieutenant governor in the interim when she replaced uh, Andrew Cuomo. Hochul is swimming and mired in a series of questions that's going to haunt her throughout the campaign. So nobody would know it better than uh, Anthony Weiner, who knows the inside uh, baseball, so to speak, of politics. Yours truly, who've been credited with knowing where all the bones are buried and who buried them. So let's uh, match what intel we have up next on a lieutenant governor situation that continues to be a problem for Democrats. Because I'm thinking of all the Democrats who've had to say, sayonara, I'm out of here. How bad was Hochul's week? Was it terrible or simply disastrous? How bad was it? Right here, Anthony Weiner on the left. Yours truly, Curtis Lee. We're here on the right. It's appointment radio, 2 to 4 on Saturdays. And if you miss it. Pick it up on the podcast and all the podcasts at WABCRadio.com. That's WABCRadio.com. Talk Radio 77 WABC. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. Just a lot of Wiener music they're going to. Curtis, I don't even know where your playlist is anymore. Oh, I mean, no, no, that's fine. I think we might have sent it back to the 70s with... Uh... That's it. Oh, no, no, no. tonight... On the overnights, 12 yeah. midnight to 6. Going to talk about how they're opening up a roller rink at uh, Rockefeller Center. I used to hit the roller rinks. Uh, you will hear music that will be a blast from the past. Roller rink disco music. By the way, your your number's not overnight. Epic. Man, oh, man. You really, uh, you got to tell some of your listeners in the overnight to check in with us here in the afternoon. Well, you... the problem is I keep them awake until 6 in the morning. <laughs> and they, everybody says that. And then... Uh, they got to take a, a cat nap at some point during the day. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. By the way, speaking of roller rinks, you know, I, I played hockey out at um, at the rink in Prospect Park, which is the first time I've played there, and I got there just in time because now it's going to be a roller rink out there. You know how much parking they have for that rink? None. You've got a par. I, I mean, if you're not from the neighborhood and you're carrying a bunch of hockey gear, you've got to take the train to Parkside, and you've got to schlep through the park. I mean, I don't want to complain. It's you know, these are high class problems. But I get being a car-free, a car-free society, and I get the idea of not wanting cars in the park. But uh, there's no way to there's nowhere to park, so you wind up you know to, you know going around the, the the neighborhood of Parkside. 
But I, I'm going to be out there roller skating with Jordan and his mom and the other kids from uh, from his school. They're having a parents association roller rink out there uh, in Prospect Park, and I'm looking forward to that. Oh, well, remember, when I was a kid growing up in Canarsie, uh, my oldest sister, Alita, would take us to the ice skating rink in Prospect Park. That's where I learned to ice skate. Yep. But then when the, the, the lake froze over, they'd have all red flags there because some of the young guys would try to go out there and walk on the ice. Red flags meant, right. no, no, dangerous. And some kids would fall into the ice, and then the cops would have to come, and there was all kinds of mishigash. But I'll never forget that. That's I fell down so often on my dupa, my tuchus. I was bruised every Saturday we'd go until I, I got pretty adept. But I played roller hockey. Not quite as organized as you. We were out in the streets, uh, and then we would have our, our tape of electrical tape. You bet. Uh, we had our, our skates that would always break down, and you had to have the key. You had to fix it. and It was, oh, my God. But uh, we were able to get through some games, and it got pretty rough and tough out well, in we, the streets. There, there are some, some of the best roller rinks in, you know, the roller hockey in maybe in the world. Where, you know, there was a, a rink on 33rd and 3rd by the Eat Some Now, Save Some for Later Candy Factory. There's one at Fort Hamilton Parkway and one down in, in, in Sheepshead Bay in my old district. And, uh, yeah, because there weren't a lot of ice rinks when I was growing up. You had eight Stark, but it wasn't very well taken care of during those no. years. It no. was in really bad shape. And and I, I, too, learned to ice skate when I transitioned from roller to, to ice at, at the park. In, well, in there, the there's park. a great roller rink right at 96th Street as you get on the FDR uh, drive yeah. in that little West Pocket Park. I see a lot of guys and gals. Uh, playing roller hockey yep. there. They come with all the equipment there, yeah. and bruising each other, banging each other into the boards. I'm saying, yeah, that's right. There's, there's this roller hockey that goes on in Tompkins Square Park, I think on Saturdays, but they don't have boards. Um, but, but yeah, there's still a lot of roller hockey that goes on. Now, Hochul, cruising to re-election. No doubt about it. Everything was breaking away uh, when all of a sudden the Attorney General uh, uh, Tish James bowed out. That made it even easier for her to win a primary slam dunk against Tom Swasey and uh, Jumani Williams. And then all of a sudden, in this week, she shows up at the crime scene where the gunman uh, had uh, fled, right near 36th Street. And because Eric Adams could not be there because he was convalescing from COVID-19 and he had to stay wherever he was staying... She starts ranting and raving like I've never heard her. And I said, Kathy, Kathy, uh, this is certainly not you. She was shrill, shriek. Oh, we can't take this anymore. And everyone's looking at it and said, well, you're the governor. What are you going to do about it? Had no answers. And no doubt that part of that was that this whole scenario of her lieutenant governor just completely being unglued. Uh, did not catch them off guard. I had to believe that uh, they had a heads up on this, and she knew this was going to explode all over the area as he was indicted. Yeah, I mean, look, if you take if you take the the big three, or she's had a terrible week or so. The budget comes out, and whatever good accomplishment she had in it was overtaken by controversy around the stadium, which was unpopular downstate, and not people weren't all that thrilled even upstate. Second, she has this 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 problem with the lieutenant governor, which if you say a president, their first big decision is choosing their vice presidential running mate. Like that's the first sign of what kind of president to be. Arguably, John McCain's campaign was ended when he named Sarah Palin just because too many people thought, boy, what bad judgment he's showing. 
choosing the lieutenant governor is the equivalent when you're the governor, particularly when we don't know you very well. We don't know Hochul all that well. So it was the first indication. And however you want to whoever you want to point fingers at, she blew it. She took someone who not only was not an asset to the ticket, but has now become a liability. And who knows if he can even be replaced. And then the third thing is that is that whatever gratitude we can show for the way that people rallied around each other and everything else around the subway shooter this week, all of the things that were problematic, like you talked about, the cameras being out, the MTA not being prepared, et cetera, et cetera, those are on her watch. The MTA, as you point out, it's a gubernatorial agency, and her, her and I didn't didn't see see it like like you did, but I've heard her performance in the moment of crisis oh, was not a great. Well, moment. you see, if Eric Adams had been available, if he could leave his quarantine, uh, he would have naturally he would have been dominating the press conference, and he would have deferred. He was saying the governor, like he always does. She had to take control because there was no one figure other than the police commissioner who's really too new at this yet to take it all upon herself to take complete control and then defer to the governor. So now everyone's looking at the governor and she had this full rage that she is not synonymous with it all. No, I know that. And, and, and there is this thing that you either have or you don't as a, an elected official, as a, this kind of leadership gene that you have that you understand a moment that you're in and you try to figure out the right tone and i know it's kind of a squishy concept and it's not as easy as saying how did you vote or what law did you pass but it is important and rudy giuliani showed it on september 11th arguably george w bush showing it on september 11th i think other elected officials have risen to the moment even when they're not in the big apocalyptic things like september 11th you have a sense for what the moment demands and that doesn't come naturally. It doesn't mean she's a bad governor. It doesn't mean she's not going to get reelected. It doesn't mean she's not going to develop these things. But not kind of sensing the moment, what the right tone was for that moment, was not a great look. Was not a great look for her. I think New Yorkers will overlook it. I think she's going to be re- she's going to be elected to a full term as mayor. But this was definitely not a good week. And I, frankly, I'm less concerned about that than I am about the judgment stuff around the lieutenant governor. Because let's assume that her explanation is correct that she knew that there were questions being asked about the integrity and the issues around her lieutenant governor. I thought they were resolved, she said, and so I would go ahead and, and went ahead and name it. Well, that I question that. Like, this, you only get to do this once. Right. You know how difficult it is to replace this person. Someone says, yes, I was questioned as part of this investigation, but it wasn't me. Even you err on the side of something else. There, were, there are plenty of other excellent elected officials in our state that she could have chosen – and now we Democrats are really in a pickle because getting this guy off the ballot is not easy. She's got to figure out probably to endorse one of her, her opponent's running mates, which is tricky. It's a little bit of a mess. Again, I don't think it debil- it's debilitating, but it's not a good look. Yeah, but also for whichever Republican wins the Republican primary, whether it happens to be Lee Zeldin, Andrew Giuliani, who I'm supporting, Bob Astorino or Harry Wilson – it gives them more ammunition because now you create this image. Look, Elliot Spitzer. Uh, you have uh, Andrew Cuomo. You have now the lieutenant governor. You forget the previous attorney general, which led us uh, to have Tish James, who was elevated from public advocate and then eventually become the attorney general. It's almost like a whole laundry list of Democrats who have been in trouble. So that that's that's certainly not going to be the dominating issue. But I would say her role in pushing for the Buffalo Bills Stadium. I don't know if you've ever been to Orchard Park. I've been out there. There's nothing out there. 
So it's not like this was going to fuel other businesses. If they were going to do it, it should have been in downtown Buffalo for economic development. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you know, I was asking my friend Kevin, who lives in Buffalo, about this. You know, I said, okay, the only way I can see that this is a net plus for her is if the people in Buffalo just treat her like she's a hero because she did this deal. Even they, first of all, the, the, the Pakulas are not super popular owners up there. Obviously, the Bills are very popular. But even they are like, okay, let's assume the best case scenario for our playoff pr- prospects in the future. You know, what are you talking about? Nine, ten home dates a year? Eleven tops, I think the math will, will work out. That's not a lot of, of bang that you're getting for the buck. So what else are they going to do in that stadium? How many concerts do you need that are going to fill a 50,000-person stadium? It's just not a great investment. Well, also the optics because her uh, husband has the vending contract. You know, every dirty water hot dog you buy, everything you buy, there, and you know the inflated prices, that's going to his company. And you would say to yourself, wow, you should have recused yourself on this. Well, what's probably going to wind up happening is maybe he's not going to get that contract now. But we even so, I don't believe that these deals are popular Period. I don't believe that it gets you a big bang for the buck uh, um, in terms of the, you know, like I did this deal. Everyone's going to be thrilled. The, uh, you know, the obvious question that comes up is, you know, and it's 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 a platitude. But why do you give billionaires and I, but give billionaires any kind of subsidy at all to build these types of stadiums when other places they haven't gotten these types of subsidies? And in terms of where would they have gone? There hasn't been a good answer. Like, was there really? Was San Diego really going to get them? Were they really going to move to Toronto? Were they? Was, is the NFL really going to going to going to do that kind of thing? So I think it's a net loser for her. And there's other stuff that she did in the budget that she'd probably be proud of. Instead, she's talking about this everywhere she goes. Well, now, uh, uh, Anthony Weiner, there's a holiday coming up on Wednesday. It's called 420. Uh, it's uh, smokers out there who love to do puff puff pass. They're going to be lighting up their blunts. It is now legal to use recreational marijuana in all of New York State, as it is in Jersey. Jersey's had to jump on us. They're opening up their first state-licensed stores this coming week. But they did another thing that could create a lot of uh, mishigash, a lot of problems for New York State. So the Attorney General in Trenton for New Jersey has a press conference, and he announced that every police officer hired from Hudson County up in Jersey City down to Camden County in Camden. Uh, when they're off duty, they can use marijuana, marijuana products. They're not going to be tested. There won't be any follicles removed uh, from your scalp so they can see if you have any uh, THC content in there or any uh, marijuana residue. You can use marijuana products from the time uh, that you check out from your eight-hour tour or more to the time you come back. So hypothetically, if you're like a half hour before your tour and you're all hyped up and you have anxiety and you decide, I'm going to smoke a dupe, you're not going to be tested. They can't hold it against you. Whereas here in New York, right away, the NYPD said, absolutely not. We don't care that it's legal for recreational use. We're going to continue to test. You fail the test, you could potentially lose your job. So you have now two different policies in two different states. It can't hold up. Well, you have a bigger problem, I think. And that is there is not an agreed-upon national standard or even a local standard for what it means to be impaired. You know, we have all become accustomed to the idea of 0.8 alcohol, sometimes 0.7 in some localities where where they test your alcohol content based on your breath or your blood and say, if you have this much, you are impaired. We don't have that for marijuana. 
This is the tip of the iceberg of a larger question. Now, if you show up in New Jersey, in New York, anywhere impaired, your bosses can get you in trouble. Okay, but the question is going to come. And, you know, this is a funny example of it. The question is going to come. Someone's going to say, yes, you might have found TLC in my system, but I was not at all impaired. I function. I function just fine. You can't show me evidence that I didn't. And right now in our rush to 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 decriminalize and our rush to formalize this as part of our regular economy, we've put aside the idea of, our, you know, some people can be impaired doing a little, some people a lot. And we don't have any kind of good standards of that. But the, this is just one of the many problems. I mean, look, I, I believe that the the benefit of decriminalized marijuana was we don't have all of these people getting arrested for that. And that that was clogging up our system. People were being arrested for marijuana when they weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't selling it. They weren't polluting their community in any way. And I think that decriminalizing was a good idea. Now that we formalized it and legalized it or normalizing it, we've got to answer a lot of questions about what it means to be impaired. Right now, you smoke marijuana, you go out and drive, and you cross over into Atlanta. A police officer pulls you over. He summonses you or gives you a, a, a violation for being impaired. You can pretty much beat that ticket, which is my understanding, because there's not a lot of hard, concrete things that that police officer can do except to say, I saw you crossed over the line. He might say that you crossed over a line uh, and you didn't signal, but being shown that you were impaired, but you might have been. And we have not sorted these things out. The police department's the least of our problems. And, and remember, at the federal level, the DEA has marijuana listed as a level one drug with fentanyl. Now, I've been on fentanyl for all my pains and strains. I've had morphine. You realize that heroin is not a level one drug, according to the DEA. You got marijuana as the most yeah. dangerous drug. This this makes no sense whatsoever. But if you happen to be a police officer in New York and you're saying, now, wait a second, they can smoke dubs down there before they go on duty in New Jersey. And we lose our jobs if we're caught in a in a, uh, you know, they test our urine or they test our follicles. Boy, it just creates all of this this problem. There's a hundred questions we have to answer. What if a teacher shows up to a class smelling marijuana? Um, what if a teacher can a teacher go into a classroom after they've smoked marijuana? Now, look, I mean, some of the some of the harms of marijuana. I mean, you know, let's put that let's put that aside. A lot of the study has not been done. One of the reasons it hasn't been studied very carefully is because it's illegal to even transport it to study it without a permit to do so. You're right. This is a this is a category one narcotic for reasons that should not be. And the federal government should take a role here. The federal government should say we're going to take this off off this list. We're going to let the states work out a, a, a regime for it. But part of that regime is figuring out how much you have to smoke before you should stay out of a car, stay off the beat, stay out of a classroom. And we haven't answered those questions yet. By the way, up next, I was shocked. I was stunned listening to you in the first hour, your solo hour, when you actually agreed that the wall should be finished that separates us from Mexico at our southern border. Build the wall, Anthony Weiner says. There you you go. are going to have to explain that, My as Ricky Ricardo said to Lucy, coming up next. My political comeback is over. Anthony Weiner on the left. Yours truly, Curtis Lee, on the right. Don't think, don't assume you know what we think, especially in this case. For Anthony Weiner, exclusive to WABC Appointment Radio, Saturdays 2 to 4. And if you miss it on the backhand side, get it on the podcast and all the great podcasts at WABCRadio.com.
It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. Gee, I thought you'd have a brick in the wall, Pink Floyd. <laughs> well, you picked the wrong Pink Floyd song, A Brick in the Wall. Oh, it is. Oh. Uh, well, it's been a while since I saw the pink uh, pink pig flying over my head. But I was stunned. I'm listening to your show as I'm doing my show prep in the other room. Because i got to come back on tonight at 12 midnight and go to 6 in the morning and keep everybody wrapped up. And I said, I can't believe what I just heard. You, you went through your whole litany of things to do because of our border issues. And a lot of the callers uh, liked your logic. But I think what stunned everybody... Well, I said, you said, you think the wall should just be finished, that portion of the wall that has not been constructed. And, w- again, could you repeat for our audience, what drew you to this conclusion? Well, first of all, let's not, let's, I mean, I was making the argument we all had to give a little bit, that we can't be didactic on left or right, that sure. a lot of the solutions are in the middle. And part of it, I'll be very honest, part of saying I support the building of the wall is so that we can stop talking about the wall. Because people, too many think people think that that's the beginning, middle, and end of the conversation about immigration. And sometimes I think we progressives, we liberals, we rise to the bait. We make the fight about something that doesn't benefit the larger conversation, which is how do you really solve this problem? And I do believe that there is a symbolic element to building of a wall. Now, 2,500 miles, a lot of it is through private property. I didn't know conservatives believed in taking private property for government works. But okay, private. a lot of it is rivers. I don't think it's the answer. But I don't think it's worth fighting over, and I do think it might be a portion of an answer on how you make sure we message to the rest of the world that we're serious about our border laws and we're serious about our immigration laws. So I'm willing to to concede to that, and I assume what that means is some of our more conservative callers, some of our more conservative listeners will say, you know what? Let's take the people who are undocumented in this country but are paying taxes – running businesses, being good neighbors, learning English, sending their kids to school. Let's put them at the end of the line, make them pay a fine, not amnesty, make them pay a fine, but give them a path to citizenship as well. We all have to give a little bit if we're going to get a solution here. And what I'm willing to give is we can build the wall. Well, wait a second. The front of the line now, because there are thousands of Ukrainians who have figured out a way to get to Mexico, uh, Mexico City, uh, the major uh, airport, and then they take a bus up to whether it is Nuevo Laredo, the other side is Laredo, or it's Juarez, the other side is El Paso, or the main area, Tijuana, the other side, uh, San Diego. And they are getting in the queue to seek asylum. And some have said, well, because they're coming out of a war-torn country and we see the vision, uh, the visuals every day, 900 bodies uh, that have been found just in the headlines uh, this morning, uh, a lot of people are saying, put the Ukrainians to the front of the line, uh, push them into the queue. Uh, others are saying, no, let them queue up and come in like anybody else. Do we think we're going to see any Ukrainians on those buses that Governor Abbott is putting those uh, aliens on who are now being bused to Washington, D.C.? Well, more importantly, uh, just last night, I thought you were going to you were going to raise this. Just last night, another flight landed in Westchester with uh, un- unaccompanied children on it. Um So the answer is, if those people, if those Ukrainians have relatives or sponsors that can't get to Texas to pick them up and they have no way to get it, yeah, we're going to put them on a plane, too, and bring them in. I mean, that's the way the system works. Yes, the the easy thing about the Ukrainian 
people is that they are clearly asylees. It doesn't take long to adjudicate these cases. They're not complicated. There's not a lot of evidence you have to you have to produce. Just basically say you came from Kirkuv or from from Kiev. It's going to be pretty clear that you are. But immigration is a tough problem. I am meeting people halfway. We are not left versus right. We are bringing people to the middle, you and me, Curtis. That's what we're accomplishing here on Holy Week, on Pesach, on Ramadan. We are agents of moderation. Still, I was stunned. Anthony Weiner wanting to finish the wall. I was stunned. My political career is over yet again.